Thanks for checking out this episode of the Christ Alone podcast. What we'll be listening to today is a, a sermon I preached uh, several years ago, and I've decided to pull them out of the closet and share them here for my Christ Alone audience. The series that I'm sharing here is called uh, Seven Sayings from the Cross. It's based on the seven last words or sayings of Jesus as he hung on the cross, Good Friday. So, as always, thanks for listening to the Christ Alone podcast. If you would like any more information on the gospel, if you have any questions, or like to comment any further on the content of the Christ Alone podcast, please get a hold of me. I would love to hear any feedback. And about the easiest way to get a hold of me is on Facebook, facebook.com backslash Dolacek, D-O-L-E-C-H-E-C-K. Or if you found this podcast some other way, the podcast feed is christalone.podbean.com. And I'd love to hear from you. So without any further ado, here is the sermon from the series Seven Sayings from the Cross. Father, we thank you for this morning. I rejoice at the chance in, in small numbers and large numbers. God, I just rejoice at the chance to get together with believers, to open up your word and to hear from you. And it is, it is a blessing. It is a privilege. It is such an abundance that you have given us that you have not only awakened our hearts, you, you give us life, but you, you invest in us and you Reveal yourself to us and you have given abundantly to us. And so I rejoice in that. My prayer this morning, God, is that you would be speaking to us, that we would have ears to hear. God, I pray for encounters with you this morning. I, you're not a God who is far off and unreal and some sort of theory and nothing, uh, nothing real tangible, but you are very real. You are here in this place this morning, your spirit is here moving in this place. And so my prayer is that your people would hear from you and that we would have ears to hear you and eyes to see you and that we might draw near and be brought closer to you in this place this morning, that we might walk out of here, God, encouraged. My prayer, God, is that joy would fill us when we meditate on who Christ is and what He's done on who you are and what you've done for us and the chasm that is between you and us that Jesus traversed and brought together and drew us near. God, joy should fill our hearts. The, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that we might have the living presence of Christ on the inside of us that we might be one with you. God, I pray that it would produce joy in our hearts in this place this morning and encouragement Hope for tomorrow and, and hope for that day, the future day, when we see you face to face and know you as you're fully, know you fully, God. Help us in this place to just draw near by the power of your Spirit, God. I pray these things in your Son Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 2334 is where we're going to be this Seven words from the cross is a topic you maybe have heard before if you've been around church very long. There's the seven last sayings of Christ from the cross. 
Jesus had a three-year ministry where he said lots of things which we have recorded for us in the gospel. But from the cross, we have seven specific statements. And not to make a bunch of numbers or make too much out of numbers, but the number seven in, in Jewish tradition is the number of perfection. God created the earth in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. It was completed in seven. And so we have here possibly in these seven last statements of Jesus the perfect amount of what he needs to say from the cross. It's an amazing thing to think about these statements made from the cross. I mean, Jesus, many things that he spoke in his ministry, but when he gets nailed to the, to the cross and is lifted up from the earth, there is quite a bit of power in what he is in these seven words. And so I'm going to, Lord willing, take my next seven turns and work through these seven last sayings of Christ from the cross. And I'm obviously uh, free to change that, and, and so I'm not married to it. But that's just kind of my plan, is to go through these amazing statements that Christ has made on the cross. You maybe have heard them before, and so I'm not going to pretend like I'm bringing something new to the, um, to the sermon, to the idea, to the thoughts on what Christ spoke from the cross. But, so there's a part of me that's kind of reserved and didn't want to and thought, well, this has been done so many times, I don't know that I need to bother saying it again. But on the other side is that I know that there's, it's good to dig into this, just the good, solid truth, who God is, who Jesus is, what he's done, and what that means for us. You can't dig into that too many times. So you can get lots of resources. Darla bought me a book for my birthday by A.W. Arthur W. Pink called The Seven Sayings of the Savior on the Cross. And so you can, there's just lots, that's, I, I'm reading through that to kind of help me along. But you can, you can get lots of resources out there about the seven sayings of the cross, of the Savior on the cross. Seven last words of Christ. I'm calling the seven words from the cross. To get the context, though, quickly of the, the depth and the power of these words, I don't want to approach the cross as just some sort of religious icon and Jesus as this exalted figure speaking these words in some sort of... I want to get the, the gravity of the choice of words that Christ has when he's on that cross. And it's easy in our Christendom, in our Christian culture, in our Christian society right here in Ringo County to view the cross as some sort of religious icon and to view Christ's sacrifice there as something we talk about maybe, well, I would argue maybe not enough, but on the other hand, mentioned so passively that it loses a lot of its real gravity. So I just want to, before we get started even into the seven sayings and the seven words from the cross, I want to try to strip away and just remind ourselves this is not just some religious icon. This is a real event in time that Christ really lived 2,000 years ago and had a, a powerful, amazing ministry for three years. And at the end of these three years ministry, gives his life, is not taken from him, but he gives his life and dies a brutal death on the cross. And so seven things I want to go through. And I don't know them because I don't have them written down if I can't get my PowerPoint to work. So that's going to have to work. And it does. First one, Jesus was arrested, though he never did any wrong. Christ, I want you to understand, that, and I want to just focus on and think about what he's going through, what gets him to this cross. Jesus was perfect. Sinless. That's important to know and important to remember. 
He was without sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Christ was sinless. He was perfect. That makes him starkly different than you and I. He was sinless. Yet, though he was sinless and had done no wrong, yet still they come and arrest him for charges of blasphemy. He is arrested though he never did any wrong. He's betrayed by one of his own. We get, um, you are betrayed multiple times by people who don't like you very much. Judas is a man who walked those three years with Jesus, um, ate with Jesus, slept with Jesus, sat at Jesus' feet. Jesus washed his feet, dipped bread and wine with Jesus. And this is the man who goes to the officials and for silver sells the life of Christ. He's betrayed by one of his own. I mean, you don't even... You don't have to go further than the first two to talk about the sting that Jesus must feel from this cross. He's deserted by all. Peter, the rock, the man who we would say with him probably because we are very um, idealistic, I would never betray Jesus. I'll never turn my back on you. And Peter says, Though I'm going with you. I'll never turn my back on you. And yet Jesus in his moment of need is deserted by everyone. Peter himself denies Christ three times in the presence of Christ. Christ, the, the rooster crows after Peter's third denial, and Jesus turns and looks at Peter, and Peter's brought to tears, betrayed and deserted by everyone. Fourth, he is put on false trial. They bring up bogus charges. Guys come in and lie about what Jesus has said, who Jesus is. They have no collaborative evidence it is a mockery of a trial that Jesus put on a midnight trial so no one can be there to um, oppose it. People are Witnesses are paid off. All these things accumulating and, and leaning against Jesus. And I want, where would your mind be going through all of these things? Where would your thoughts go? A few more. He was mocked as a prophet. Jesus was a prophet of God. And they... They cover his head and hit him with sticks and tell him to prophesy, which one of us hit you? And you know Jesus probably could have told him. He probably could have obliged him with that one and said, yeah, that was you. And I know you could have given your family lineage. I mean, he, he could have done it. He didn't do it. But he's mocked as a prophet, um, brutally beaten. And that word brutally, I don't, you know, how do you describe the, the trial that he went through with the, the, the beating, the pulling out of the beard? Facial hair being pulled out, bleeding from your face. Crown of thorns pressed down on your head. The scourging that he went through from the whips of, of the 40 lashes from the cat of nine tails. We all have heard that we talk about it quite a bit, but it's a good thing to talk about. The leather whip with a piece of bone and metal in it, the studs that would be whipped in the person back and yanked out that men would sometimes lose ribs from the scourging. And this is what Jesus endures. What there isn't anything that ruins physical pain is 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 life altering. I mean, not that I have had a lot of acquaintance with physical pain, but when you get a stomach ache, you know, and you start puking, it doesn't take you. That ruins your day. It does. And really, for compared to what some people go through, that's a pretty light affliction. When you, um, I fell down on the basketball court. Um, 
because I'm not very graceful. I wish I could say it was like some awesome thing I did. No, I just was running and fell. And you don't think you should go bad at 30, but it's like already I tried to jump while I was running and my legs collapsed. And I hurt my wrist. And just for, I mean, for two months, my wrist is just hurt. And there's just this small amount of pain really messes, I mean, you know, it just physical pain messes with you in a way like nothing else does. Physical pain will make you say things you thought you'd never say. And some of you who've ever stubbed your toe, no, I'm talking about physical pain, make you say things you never thought you'd say. So at the end of being brutally beaten, he is given a cross to carry and, and has to go to the hill, a place called the Skull, the hill called Golgotha. And he has to carry this cross up a hill. And when he gets to the top of the cross, he's at the top of the hill, he's laid down on this cross and through some of the most sensitive nerve centers in your body, nails are driven through his wrists, through his hands, and through his feet. Mess your wrists up. Mess your feet up. It ba- it's painful. This is what Christ goes through. What would you say in this moment? I mean, you look at the seven last words of Christ, and it's they're, they're powerful just in reading them, but when you comp- contract them, think about what you would say here. What would you say here? He, I mean, the words that he comes up with are so unfamiliar to us. What do you say when someone cuts you off in traffic? Which we don't, so you have to go out of town to get that. But say that you're in Des Moines. <laughs> you're not here. You're not getting cut off in traffic. Or someone pulls out in front of you, I suppose. And then it never fails that if someone pulls out in front of you late, they're going to drive 25 in, in the 45 zone. It just never fails. What comes out of your mouth out of that inconvenience? You'd like to curse the person a little bit. What an idiot. That, you know, you, that is, Christ has gone through this horrific experience. And what comes out of his mouth? There's so much power just in what you see is you see a man in control of the events. And you honestly do. Jesus says that no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And we see this on the cross. We see a man who, who is in control that he's not being crucified against his will. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He has laid down his will and said, Father, your will, not my own, be done. And we see a man in control of his... What we see is we see Christ is no ordinary man. Christ is no ordinary man. Any of us going through this would say many different things. Christ is no ordinary man. This is the God-man. This is God incarnate. Come to earth, live a sinless, perfect life for our benefit, dying the punishment that we deserve, we should listen to what he says. We should listen to what he says. And so we're in Luke 23, verse 34, the first word of Jesus from the cross. Jesus says here in Luke 23, verse 34, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There's some dispute. Um, some early New Testament manuscripts lack this saying they have that he cast his lots and, and the Father forgive them for they do not what they do. There's some manuscripts that are missing that. They definitely, Jesus definitely said this. Jesus definitely said that Stephen um, echoes Christ in his, um, in his martyrdom when he's stoned, when he says, Father, forgive them. Uh, for what they do. He prays forgiveness for them. Stephen models this, and we'll see that Isaiah prophesies Jesus will say this. But 
just to let you know that I do know that some manuscripts are... But anyway, Jesus. this is a statement Jesus prays from the cross. Father, forgive them for what they do. i got three observations I want to make, and in 15 minutes, three truths I want to try to dig in a little more. So i got six points I want to try to make. So, wish you know, God be with me. Observation number one. Christ in his moment of trial turns to prayer. Man, I wish that I wish I had that wisdom. And you should gain, you should take that wisdom from Christ. That in the moment of horrific events transpiring, he cries out to his father. He cries out to his father. Father, forgive them for they know what they do. Jesus begins his ministry with prayer and he ends his ministry in prayer. Jesus' ministry starts and is filled throughout with prayer. At his baptism, it records, that's what the Luke 3.21 is there, it records Jesus as he prays, Spirit descends upon him. Jesus begins his ministry with prayer and it is full of prayer all the way through. And from the cross, where does Christ go? He goes to prayer. Doubtless, Doubtless he's been in prayer the whole time. Why? Why would Christ pray? Why would Christ pray? Why would Christ, why would we take this admonition to turn to prayer? Christ would pray because he knows who helps. He knows who can help. He knows who can help. He knows who's in control. He knows who's in control of this moment. And it isn't those people. Cursing them will do him no good. Matthew Henry said that better would Jesus have prayed or more likely Jesus could have prayed, curse you and called down fire upon the people for crucifying him. Very easily could he have done that and been justified in so doing. It's wrong to to kill Jesus. Murder is wrong in any case. And when you murder the Son of God, this perfect human being, it's wrong. And he would have been right to have done something quite different. But he doesn't. Praise. First observation, Christ turns to prayer. Question is not why does Christ turn to prayer. I think a better, I mean, a question you can't ask that. A better question would be why do we not more often turn to prayer? Why do you not more often turn to prayer? Why do I not more often turn to prayer? Christ in this crucial moment of his life. I mean, just astounding things happening. And where does he turn? He turns to prayer. Second observation is that no one is beyond the grasp of God's forgiveness. If Christ can pray for the forgiveness of those who, the very hands who are crucifying Him, no one is beyond the grasp of God's forgiveness. No one is beyond the grasp of God's forgiveness. If anyone should be beyond the grasp of God's forgiveness, it should be these people. They murder His Son. They crucify His Son. They put nails in His hands. They beat Him up. They mock Him. They kill Him. They take his, he gives his life up, whatever you want to say. You know what I'm getting at. If anyone deserves un, to not be forgiven, it's these people. Yet the very thing Christ prays for is their forgiveness. No one is beyond the grasp of Christ's forgiveness. Never look around and see people who are unable to have the forgiveness of God reach them. Never look around and see people beyond the reach of God. Never look around and see people who are beyond God's reach. Christ looked and did not see people beyond God's reach. He prayed, God forgive them, because he believed, as we should, that no one is beyond the grasp of God's forgiveness. And likewise, never run, never run 
when sin overtakes you. Never run when sin overtakes you. You all sin. Okay. And it's tempting in those moments that when we have turned our back on God to keep going that way because we believe that we might be beyond the grasp of God's forgiveness. No one's ever beyond the grasp of God's forgiveness. No one's ever beyond the grasp of God's forgiveness. And what you should do in those moments is not run from, but run to Him. Because no one is beyond the grasp of God's forgiveness. The third thing, sins need forgiveness. And ignorance is not innocence. Um, sin is, is and, and forgiveness is maybe your highest need. Forgiveness is your highest need. And, and, and not just the forgiveness of people around you, that's great, and we love it when people around us forgive us, but your, your sin is a trespass against God. That's what, if you were old school, it would talk about your trespasses. And that it's your, forgive us our trespasses as we've forgiven those who trespass against us. If you're a good Methodist, that's how you've memorized it, is that it's trespasses. You've trespassed against a righteous, holy, perfect God. And because of that trespass, you have no rights to that holy God anymore. Some transaction has to happen in order for a person who persists, who is born dead in their sins, born dead in their sins, and yet twice dead because they sin, because they're born dead in sin, has no right to approach a holy, righteous God. And unless some transaction happens, unless forgiveness for that sin happens somehow, that sinner, which is all of us, all of mankind, everyone descended from Adam, which is all of us, has no right to get to Christ. Acts chapter 3.19, Peter in his first sermon. In many ways, this prayer is answered in Peter's first sermon. It says, Repent therefore and turn to God that the seasons of refreshing might come. Something along those lines. All of that refreshing hinges upon repent then and turn to God. Your sins, in order for refreshing to come, your sins need forgiveness. God is often painted as, as a fairy. Um, the, the great pixie in the sky who just, oh, I don't really care. It's okay that you transgress against me. It's okay that you walk away from me. It's okay that you turn your back on me. It's okay that you choose your way. It's okay that you elevate yourself as God and make me below yourself. That's not true. God is righteous. God is a jealous God for His own glory. And, and that's not bad because He's the most glorious one there is. It's wrong for you to want your glory because you're a fallen human. It's right for God to want His glory because He's truly glorious. So when we usurp that authority, God, it's, it's wrong for God to say, oh, don't worry about it. I'll let it slide. It would be sin for God to say, my glory is not as valuable as it really is. Can't do it. Some other transaction has to happen. Sin and needs forgiven. Ignorance is not innocence. Forgiven, Father, for they know not what they do. Ignorance is no plea before the law. Sin is sin. And sin needs forgiven. Um, you probably know better. If you were honest, you probably know better. You probably know better. We don't have time to go much more into that. Three things I want to just dig in deeply, quickly. Christ in this word from the cross, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Three more things I want to dig in in our last five minutes. Christ is all at once an example of radical forgiveness. So, and he, as an example, he, Christ is all at once an example for, of radical forgiveness. He is at once securing our own forgiveness 
and feeling our hearts to forgive. Jesus walked the talk. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, he tells his disciples to, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We all say lots of things that we know we should do and that you know other people should do. Christ is better than that. When he says you should do a thing, he does it. And in this we see the great example of Christ that says, pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. First Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Peter just, I mean, this is, many of us might, First Peter 3, 9, I'll read the text first. It says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Now, you might be able to, maybe, probably not, but you might be able to live up to that. To not um, repay evil for evil. You might say, well, they did evil, but I'm not going to do evil back. Two wrongs don't make a right. So I'm not going to do it. Wise man once said. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to repay evil for evil. I'm not going to repay um, what, uh, this reviling for reviling. You might, well, I might be able to do that. But the, the, the example of Christ and what Peter says here is, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called. And the calling is in verse 23 of chapter 2, it says, When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Christ did not, oh, not only did he not repay evil for evil, but he blessed. He blessed. He blessed those. He walked the talk. Um, how, even while he is doing that, let's, we got to move on. He purchased our forgiveness, even as he prayed for it. A lot of scriptures here. He's praying for our forgiveness. And on what basis would God be able to forgive us? There has to be some sort of transaction happening. In order for God to remain just and the justifier, Romans 3 talks about, 324. In order for God to be just in 25. Be just and justifier, some kind of transaction has to happen. Acts chapter 10, verse 43. Peter preaching here says that, to him, all the prophets that bear witness, all the prophets bear witness, all these Old Testament prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him, being Christ, receives forgiveness through his name. So there's forgiveness through his name. Somehow, the prophets of Old Testament are prophesying that there's forgiveness for those who would believe in his name. How, what is the, what is the working out of that transaction? Hebrews chapter 9, just flying through a few scriptures here. It says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And we don't have time to go through, though it's a fun study to go through yourself, all the Old Testament sacrificial picture of the blood being put on the altar for the remission of sins. And they had a very clear idea that if blood wasn't shed, there was no forgiveness of sins. And that blood had to be shed. And Romans, or Hebrews 9 and 10 our great chapters talking about Christ is that ultimate sacrifice. That His blood was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1.7 says that in Him you were redeemed. Through, in Him we have redemption. Through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Your redemption is purchased for... As Christ is praying for forgiveness for those people, He is purchasing the very 
right for them to get it with His own blood. Our sins expiated, given to Christ. He sheds His blood on the cross unto death for the forgiveness of our sins. This is exactly prophesied of Christ in Isaiah 53. Suffering servant song here. It says that therefore I will divide him. This is speaking of Jesus. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. Was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. Christ on the cross bears the sin of many. Your sin is put onto Christ on the cross. And the shedding of His blood is the remission of your sins. Yet He bore the sin of many, Isaiah 53, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Christ paying for the transgressors. God should hold your sins against you. He would be right to hold your sin against you. Totally just to wipe you off the face of the earth for your sin. Wages of sin is death. It would be right for Him to hold your sin against you. But instead, He holds Him against Christ on the cross. He holds Him against Christ on the cross in our place. And if we'll look, if you'll look to Him, trust in Him, put your faith and your hope and treasure Him, your sin will be wiped away. And forgiveness will be yours. Lastly, Knowing this truth, knowing that, knowing that truth provides the fuel so that we might forgive as well. Colossians 3.12 says that um, you should forgive even as Christ forgave you. Forgive each other even as in Christ you've been forgiven. Um, Just to wrap up, I mean, why do I want to go to you should forgive. When we see Christ on the cross, He's a great example. Forgive. He purchases our own forgiveness. That should be fuel for you to forgive others. Because Christ has forgiven you much, you should turn and forgive others. Why stress the need for you to forgive others? You can tell the depth to which you get God's forgiveness of you in Christ by the measure of your willingness to forgive those who have sinned against you. So in my just wanting us, wanting myself, wanting us to be a church, wanting to be people who are quick to forgive, I want that not just for the sake of it's some great churchy thing and whatever. It's where your joy is found. It's where your joy is found. And I don't say that in some sort of psychologist like... um, you, you forgive other people and it frees you. And it's, you know, I'm not talking psychobabble. I'm talking about you forgive other people. It's for your joy because you know that that forgiveness that I offer to them is not because of what I... God has forgiven me so much in Christ. How could I hold anything against anyone else? All of the transgressions that I have committed against Him, how could I hold a transgression against anyone else? It is for your joy that you forgive other people. It's for your joy that you get deeply how much it cost for God to take that transgression against Him and put it on His Son. For Jesus to take that transgression upon Himself and to still pray, Father, forgive them. Father, 
Forgive them, for they do not know what they do. You only don't forget, I mean, I guess I have two things, and I shouldn't be exhaustive because I don't know if I am or not. But I've got two reasons why you might not forgive people. You might not forgive people because you minimize the depth of your own forgiveness. You minimize the depravity. You minimize the need of your own forgiveness. If you have unforgiveness in your heart, and I bet that if we dug around very deep and about all, you'd find some. You, you're holding on to it for one of two reasons, probably. You're minimizing the reality of your need for forgiveness yourself and that you don't deserve it. you minimizing that the fact that I am forgiven in Christ and that God would put my sin upon Christ and reconcile me to Himself apart from anything I've done but just by His mercy and His grace. If you minimize the need of that for yourself, then, then you're not quick to forgive others. And the other reason is that you might elevate your status. You might say, I'd forgive that person, but they need to pay for what they did. And what you're basically saying is that I deserve vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says me. And that's not the Bible message. You need to repent for both of those things. Those very two sins that I've just talked about, while you might hold off on forgiving, are the very, some of the very sins Christ died on the cross to forgive you for. That you would minimize your transgression against a holy and righteous God. Jesus died to take away that sin. You need to repent. We need to repent for minimizing our depravity and our desperate need for forgiveness of God. And we need to repent for holding ourselves up as people who somehow deserve to have people pay us back, though Christ demanded no payment from us, but freely gave. But we say we're, we're higher than God. Because God didn't have to demand that, but me, I need it. We need repentance. Forgiveness is for your joy. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When you wrestle with unforgiveness, revisit the cross. Revisit the cross where Christ prays this prayer as a great example for us, as the purchaser of our forgiveness, and as the fuel that we might be gracious and forgiving for those because God in Christ forgave us so much more than we should ever have to forgive and we'll ever have to forgive anyone for the transgression against us. Let's pray. God, I, I just want to rejoice. I want to rejoice in Your grace and Your mercy towards me. pray that we would be convicted by the words of Paul who says I was the chief of sinners. So many things wrong about me. Yet Christ prays for my forgiveness and secures my forgiveness and gives me fuel that I might forgive those around me. God, forgive me for minimizing the depravity and the wickedness of my sin and my own need for forgiveness. Forgive me for elevating myself above You and demanding um, payment instead of freely forgiving. Forgive me, God. I thank You and I rejoice. I rejoice that in Christ that I have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of my trespasses and that forgiveness is freely made available to everyone in this room this morning. None of us, no matter what kind of week we've had, 
no matter what kind of life we've had, no matter what kind of mourning we've had, none of us is beyond the grasp of God's forgiveness that God and myself might reach out in this place this morning, grab us and draw us near to Him. Forgive us of our trespasses. Set us right with Him and empower us to live according to His purpose and His plan. God be with us.